0: For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. I spend a lot of time picking through the well-worn concept of genius. How much is someone's assumed amazingness due to something innate in them, this something untouchable or God-given, a blessing that makes them special in a particular way? How much of genius is our misunderstanding of the hard work that it actually really takes to get good at a skill? How much of genius is truly due to talent? How much to suffering? How much to being at the right place at the right time? And how much of it isn't due to that particular genius or that specific person at all? How much of someone's genius is, in fact, due to someone else's hard work? Someone else who was there at the right place at the right time, or just knew the right people? In the case of art history's favorite tortured boyfriend, Vincent van Gogh, it might be a combination of all the above. But that last part, the question of someone else's toil and connections, it might be even more integral to Van Gogh's genius than you may have previously thought. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In Art Curious Season 11, we are highlighting the lives and works of women who supported some of the world's favorite artists. Today, I am so excited to share with you the life of Johanna van Gogh Bönger, the woman who single-handedly made Vincent van Gogh, her brother-in-law, a household name. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I am Jennifer Dassel. I've spoken many times before on this podcast that by no means am I going to be exhaustive on this show because there is just no way to cover everything, and not even everything that I personally want to cover which includes huge swaths of time, cultures, communities, artistic periods, and styles. But there are certain people who I've long waited to feature on the show, and I am finally getting the chance to share the story of Johanna Van Gogh with you. Because y'all know that I am a Vincent Van Gogh person, and without Yo, as we might want to call her, we might never have gotten to know Vincent quite so well. Or perhaps at all. So let's celebrate this unique, tireless, smart woman who brought one of art history's favorite artists to the attention of the public. Johanna Gezina-Bonger was born on October 4, 1862, as one of seven children, though other sources I've read have also claimed her as one of ten children. Regardless, she was born in a middle-class family from Amsterdam in Holland, or the Netherlands today. Her father, Hendrik, was an insurance broker, and her mother, Hermina, stayed at home to tend to the household. Johanna was called Jo or Joe, by most, and it was the nickname that she preferred to use throughout her life. Friends and family reported her as a, quote, cheerful and lively child, who used to love to while away the hours playing the piano. She was also wildly smart, and her parents fostered her education by allowing her to study English something that was not common among her other sisters, who were instead asked to stay home and contribute to domestic help. And Jo, she really took to this, even ending up with the equivalent of a college degree in Amsterdam in the late 19th century. Again, at a time when, say it with me, women weren't often able to do so. But those educational opportunities came in handy for young Jo's career prospects. After graduation, she moved to London, where she worked at the library of the British Museum for a few months before returning to Holland to work as an English teacher, first in the town of Elberg, which is about 80 kilometers east of Amsterdam, and then in Utrecht, about 42 kilometers from Amsterdam. But it was back in Amsterdam in the late 1880s that she met a friend of one of her brothers, a man named Theo van Gogh. If you know much about Vincent van Gogh, or really just a little bit of his biography, then you know the importance of his brother, Theo to his life. Teo acted as Vincent's confidant, financial backer, supporter, and all-around metaphorical guardian angel. Teo worked as an art dealer with the firm Goupil & Company, whose Parisian outpost he now manned after stints at Goupil both in Brussels and at The Hague. From all accounts, it was Teo who fell in love first, and he fell in love super intensely and desperately. He confessed that he had fallen in love with Joe at first sight, seeing something amazing in her that he had long sought in others but had never found. She was everything he had ever dreamed of. And Joe? Well, she liked his cultural lifestyle and his intellectualism, but she wasn't exactly in love with him yet. Nevertheless, Tao proposed very quickly. Only after briefly knowing Joe. A proposal which she turned down, by the way. Pragmatically noting in her diary, quote, I could not say yes to something like that. But we know, of course, that she would eventually say yes. Joe agreed to an epistolatory relationship, with the two of them writing letters back and forth over the span of nearly two years. And it is during this time that we can trace her feelings watching them deepen until they finally matched his. And in 1889, those crazy kids made it official. Johanna Gezina married Théo van Gogh that April. The newly deemed Mrs. Théo van Gogh began her married life in Paris. And truly, this was Paris at one of its most colorful and enriching periods, at least for those who could afford the city's middle-class pleasures, as Joe probably could. This was the Belle Époque, a time filled with cultural stimulation and diversion. And in art, it was a powerhouse, too. Theo, as both an art lover and an art dealer, was especially interested in artists who were breaking some of the rules of the traditional art academies. So he idolized the Impressionists, who were, by now, the major talk of the art scene and were practically established by this point. And Teo was also super supportive of the next generation of artists, those risk-takers who were following in the experimental footsteps of groups like the Impressionists. And one of those new experimental artists was none other than his brother, Vincent. Theo was Vincent's greatest advocate and was the person who actually recommended that his brother focus on making art full-time when Vincent's previous forays into other careers, as a pastor, art dealer, and teacher, didn't pan out. Theo also footed the bill for Vincent's life while the elder Van Gogh was trying to get his art career off the ground. And that was then a reality, if not a burden, that Joe Van Gogh had to accept. With Theo's art dealer connections, it was natural for Vincent to pass along his finished paintings to his brother so that Theo could put them up for exhibition and sale, which he did to the best of his abilities. This meant that Joe's Parisian apartment was chock full with canvas after canvas effectively sharing her living space, her husband, and her life with her brother-in-law. And she seems to have managed this well, whereas Theo sometimes did not. Theo, the far more level-headed and emotionally stable of the Van Gogh brothers, spent a lot of his time worrying about Vincent. And to be fair, he had a lot of reasons to worry. Vincent was turbulent, irrational, and impulsive and he experienced a bunch of both physical and mental impairments, which vastly affected his mood and his abilities. He also underwent a nervous breakdown, which led both to his legendary ear mutilation and to his voluntary commitment to a mental asylum in the small town of Saint-Rémy-de-Provence in 1889. But there was at least one incredible bright spot in Tao and Joe's lives. Their son was born in January of 1890, and they named him Vincent Willem, in honor of his beloved uncle. In spring 1890, Joe and Theo received a letter from Vincent, informing them that he was preparing to make a trip to Paris, and that he would be stopping in to visit with them and to meet new little baby Vincent. Joe noted in her diary that she expected, from Theo's anguished concern, that Vincent would show up looking like, quote, an enfeebled mental patient, which, as we know, he kind of was, or at least he had been since he had his time at the asylum. But when he arrived, Joe was taken back by Vincent's joie de vivre. Describing him, she wrote, quote, Before me was a sturdy, broad-shouldered man with a beautiful, healthy color, a cheerful look in his eyes, and something very resolute in his appearance. Here he was in front of her, energetic, spirited. Enthusiastic. But an image of Vincent as cheerful, productive, and hopeful about the future unfortunately wasn't to last. Just a few weeks after his visit to Paris, Vincent established himself in the nearby town of Auvers sur Oise, and it was then, in July 1890, that he died at the age of 37 after he shot himself, or did he, in a nearby field. Theo arrived by train to stay at his brother's bedside in his final hours, and P.S. If you think it's weird that Vincent van Gogh went from cheery to suicidal in just a number of weeks, you are not alone. And if you haven't yet listened to our episode on the death of van Gogh, I heartily recommend that you do. It is episode number two, which we re-recorded as a two-parter in late 2020 as part of our listeners' favorite series. That'll be linked in the blog post and the show notes for this episode. Quite understandably, Theo Van Gogh was absolutely devastated by the loss of his big brother. And it broke him, truly. Only about three months after Vincent's death, Theo suffered a complete physical collapse, probably triggered by a transition into the latter stages of a syphilis infection that was contracted years before. But of course, Vincent's death didn't help. Theo's condition worsened painfully over the next few months. And then, Theo, just 33, died in January 1891, only six months after his brother's own death. I hate imagining Jo at this moment. At age 28, she unexpectedly transformed into a widow and a single mother to a one-year-old, living on her own with no help in Paris. She also became the owner of the single largest collection of the works of Vincent van Gogh, including paintings, drawings, prints, and his letters inheriting them all from the deceased Van Gogh brothers. Jo understood the value of Vincent's works, though. She understood that these paintings and the man who created them were different. They were special. And then she decided to focus her attention on two things, raising and supporting her child and bringing Vincent Van Gogh's works to a wider and more appreciative audience. Coming up next... Joe gets to work on those seemingly impossible job of promoting a little-known artist. And we will get to that and more right after this quick message. Thank you for listening. You've looked at your business hiring from every angle, but there's something that you feel like you're missing— it could be faster. So you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they post a job, according to Indeed Data US. For me, it's all about efficiency. So one of the things I love most about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because you get to do everything on the Indeed site. With virtual interviews, Indeed saves me time so I can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. There's no need to install anything extra because all of their virtual interviews are available through your browser. No downloads, no plugins, no purchases. You can do all of it in one place with Indeed. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit toward your first sponsored job. Plus, you can earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit indeed.com art to learn more. Claim your credits at indeed.com art. Indeed.com art. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. Joe Jo van Gogh didn't receive a lot of immediate support for the role of chief promoter for the works of Vincent van Gogh. Family and friends close to Jo felt that this project of hers held her back, and they really wanted her to move on. Your husband is dead, and so is your brother-in-law. And it's a tragedy, but it happens, they all seemed to say. Just sell all of Vincent's paintings for whatever you can get for them and call it done, they protested to her. But Jo knew better. She respected her husband's opinions, his surety about the importance of Vincent and his works, and she wanted to carry this belief on. And she made this clear in her journal in 1891, where she wrote that she was, quote, not without things to do, meaning that she understood the lack of time that she had to spend on this project, but at the same time, she felt devoted to it, sharing her need to, quote, make sure that it is seen and appreciated as much as possible. Admittedly, things were a bit slow going at the outset. Not terribly long after Theo's death, Joe was approached by Émile Bernard, an artist and a writer who was himself a friend of Vincent van Gogh's. In considering her predicament, Bernard suggested that she leave all of Vincent's paintings in Paris in his care as Joe was planning to move back to Holland. But that didn't sit right with Joe. And I personally think this was a very good move because I am a bit suspicious of Bernard's intentions here. So when Jo did return to Holland, she did so with Vincent's paintings in tow. Jo van Gogh didn't return to her hometown of Amsterdam when she and little baby Vincent moved. Instead, she chose a village called Busum, which is today about a half hour drive from Amsterdam. And to me, it looks like Jo was very specific in choosing Busum and that she did it specifically to help with Vincent's posthumous career. Bussam was known at the time as a small but lively hub of artistic and intellectual life, and one of Joe's acquaintances, an artist, professor, and critic named Jan Veth, lived there. She knew that if she could get Veth to champion Vincent's works, that her road to recognition for her brother-in-law would be a far easier path to tread, and so to Bussam and Veth she moved. But Jan Veth wasn't originally all that into Van Gogh's paintings, despite Joe's early encouragement. He just dismissed them. Joe, of course, was a woman who had no experience with art criticism or sales and therefore couldn't be trusted, in the eyes of many, to be a good judge of artistic merit. This would, by the way, be a recurring criticism of Joe's efforts. And yet, Joe prevailed. Not too long after her disappointing first meeting with Jan Veth, Joe had an epiphany. Vincent's paintings, while incredible on their own, were made so much more personal, intimate, and flat out amazing when understood alongside his thoughtful, eloquent letters, those beautiful handwritten notes that he sent so often to his beloved brother, all of which Theo had kept and that Joe now had in her possession. And so she gave Jan Veth a small envelope stuffed with a selection of Vincent's letters, asking him to give them. And the paintings, a chance. And guess what? It worked. Veth was charmed by what he called, quote, the astonishing clairvoyance of great humility in an artist who, quote, sought the raw root of things. With Jan Veth as one of her first allies, Joe was now ready to start tackling a bigger audience. It's entirely possible that Jo had learned some tips on the art market from Teo, who, remember, was an art dealer. So she knew that she had to be smart about her promotion and sale of Vincent's works. First, we know that she approached Vincent's oeuvre with that two-pronged strategy of using Van Gogh's writings to support and add meaning to his artwork. Second, she used her network of friends and connections to spread the word slowly and gently, about every single exhibition she arranged, no matter how big or small. Jo's system was very grassroots, but those made all the difference in the eventual spread of acclaim and esteem for Vincent's artwork, because her connections in Busum, Amsterdam, and further afield in Holland, enabled her to coordinate around 20 exhibitions of Vincent's paintings between the years of 1892 and 1900. And then third, Jo knew better than to sell a ton of inventory right off the bat, flooding the market. This is basic economics, but she understood this innately. She needed to drum up interest in Vincent and his works by offering select pieces up for exhibition or sale only when the time was right and collectors were clamoring. To know all of this about Jo van Gogh, a widow and single mother at the turn of the 20th century, is just incredible. So many professionals in the art world underestimated her, thinking that she was an amateur. But she proved each and every one of them wrong. And in the process, she almost single-handedly grew Vincent van Gogh from a little-known painter into a household name. And Jo wasn't done yet. The rest of her story is coming up right after this break. Come right back. My kiddo is wonderfully curious. He's always asking incredible questions about the world around him. Like, how do caterpillars turn into butterflies? Why is the day getting longer? And why is it getting warmer now? Spring brings along new curiosities and a chance for kids to connect with the world around them. There are so many incredible opportunities to learn, and it's the perfect time for discoveries. And with a KiwiCo subscription, kids can discover the engineering and mechanics behind everyday objects, the science and chemistry of cooking, geography and culture from new places, and brand new art and design techniques, all through seriously fun, hands-on projects where they, and you, can learn about a new STEAM topic every month, ranging from rainbows to rocket ships and everything in between. Discover subscription lines for kids of all ages, ranging from infants and preschoolers all the way up to teens. And grownups are also welcome to join in on the fun. My son and I both enjoyed receiving his very first Kiwi Crate recently. We got exactly what we wanted, which was the Atlas Crate, full of immersive, hands-on, high-quality activities that help us explore and appreciate world cultures, which is perfect for my little traveler. This month we learned about India, made our own mandalas, and blended up our own mango lassies. And we loved every moment and now we're counting down the days until the next box arrives in the mail. It is our favorite day of the month and it is sure to be your child's too. With KiwiCo, you can do your part to encourage your children to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. So give them the tools to learn new skills, build new experiences, and make new connections to the broader world. There's something for kids of all ages and there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel anytime. Step into spring and celebrate the season of discovery with a KiwiCo subscription. Get 30% off your first month plus free shipping with any crate line with code ARTCURIOUS at kiwico.com. That's 30% off your first month at K I W I C O.com. Promo code ARTCURIOUS. Welcome back to Art Curious. After she conquered Holland, Jo Van Gogh knew that international success would be the next big step to gaining major recognition for Vincent's artworks. Connecting to some of the major art dealers in Europe, especially in France and Germany, would make the most sense, she knew. But Jo wasn't ready to hand over Vincent's works and her control over his legacy to just anybody. So throughout the first two decades of the 20th century, she continued to act as the linchpin in the estate of Vincent Van Gogh. She worked directly with dealers to negotiate sales prices and to manage inventory. And slowly but surely, Vincent's works began filtering into private and public collections throughout some of Europe's biggest cities and featuring as central works in large-scale museum exhibitions. And that connection with museum exhibitions? That was the most important element for Joe Van Gogh. Museums, for many, even today signify a kind of acceptance about a work of art as being critical, meaningful, or noteworthy. Museums breed a sense of cultural affirmation, whether or not it might be warranted, and that's an argument for another day. But we still shouldn't minimize the importance of showing a work in a museum. It's a big deal when a work enters a museum collection, and Jo wanted that for her brother-in-law, for his work, for her husband, who believed so strongly in his brother. And she wanted it too, because she also believed that Vincent's work was worthy of international and enduring acclaim. Knowing that museums would provide the best route to that acclaim, Jo achieved something rather stunning in 1905. She identified the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, which was just beginning to expand its holdings of contemporary art, and now had a new curator at its helm as a museum that was progressive and an exciting place to showcase Dutch art. And Joe convinced the museum to hold a career retrospective of Vincent van Gogh's works, which was a landmark exhibition showcasing, get this, 484 works of art, a huge number of pieces, and the exhibition of the most works by Vincent van Gogh to be exhibited at any given time, a record that it still apparently holds today. But here is the most incredible part. Jo van Gogh funded it entirely by herself. I want to take this moment to insert the fact that just four years prior, in 1901, Jo had remarried and her second husband, who was an artist named Johann Cohen-Gosshock, was very supportive of his wife's passion project. So it's likely that Jo both had the emotional and financial support to fund this major exhibition. But in my eyes, This doesn't at all diminish her success here. She did everything. Not only offering incredible and iconic works of art, which included, for example, works that had already been sold, like The Iconic Starry Night from 1889. But she also managed everything else, from designing and printing posters to advertise the exhibition, to assembling a VIP guest list for the show's opening even going so far, according to author Russell Shorto, as to buy bow ties for the museum staff to make sure that they were appropriately attired to host their fancy opening party. But again, think of it. By engaging a museum, and an acclaimed one at that, to host her show, by suggesting the need for a VIP list, by asking employees to dress in ties, all of that was a brilliant calculation on Joe's part to signal that Vincent's works were special, important, unique. And of course, someone would then want to pay a pretty penny to have one of these works of art in their art collection. This was the single event that exploded the reputation of Van Gogh. A reputation, as we know, that only grew and continues to grow today. As she went on to work to arrange exhibitions and sales of Vincent's work around the world, she also continued to recommend that the best way to appreciate and understand Vincent's unique way of seeing the world and expressing it through his artwork was to read his letters. She knew this firsthand from her early experiences with critics like Jan Veth, who saw themselves mirrored in Vincent's hopes and dreams. So throughout much of the first decade of the 20th century, she worked painstakingly to edit a selection of Vincent's letters to Theo which was then published in 1914 in both German and Dutch translations. Jo, with her personal connection to Vincent's works, also added an introduction to allow for readers to better understand Vincent's biography and his relationship with Theo. and she also went so far as to work on her own English translation of the letters, too. Jo's consideration of an English-language translation shows that she was looking to break into the American market in particular by the mid-19-teens. But this, as Russell Shorto explains, would prove to be one of Joe's most challenging endeavors. America was, in comparison to Europe, a much more prudish place when it comes to art, and much more conservative in its national tastes. And Joe, quite frustratingly, was met with rejection there in her early attempts to secure recognition for Vincent van Gogh's works. As she would later write to a friend, quote, I supposed the American taste in art was advanced enough fully to appreciate Van Gogh in which I have been rather mistaken. But eventually this would change, but not without some major work on Joe's part. As we've discovered though, Joe didn't do things halfway. She gave it her all. And that meant that to fulfill this mission, she dropped everything and moved to New York for 3 years. By this point, she was a widow a second time over after Goshock's death in 1912, her son was grown, she was 54 years old, and now she was more committed than ever to the cause of fine art. Jo van Gogh returned in the 1920s to her hope that the English translation of Vincent's letters would finally come to fruition. But when publishers wanted to produce an abridged version rather than the whole slew of letters between the van Gogh brothers, she balked and it wouldn't be until 1927 that the first English edition would be published. But in every situation, Jo van Gogh didn't back down, and she refused to work with those who second-guessed her instincts or undercut her ideas. That is one of the reasons why I think she was so successful, selling upwards of 190 paintings and 55 drawings by Vincent van Gogh during her lifetime. After three years of living in New York, Jo returned to Holland, where she moved between homes in Amsterdam and in the Dutch countryside, enjoying her time with her family, especially her grandchildren. But her commitment to Vincent, and thereby Theo, never faltered. She passed along her life's work to her son, Vincent Willem, who continued the family tradition of rallying around his uncle's work. When questioned about her ongoing commitment to Vincent van Gogh, she would reply, Quote, all of this is very satisfying for me, for it's the only thing I can do in the memory of my husband and of Vincent. Joe Van Gogh died in 1925 at the age of 62. And today, Vincent Van Gogh is one of the most prized artists, with museums around the world proudly showcasing his paintings, drawings, and prints. Vincent made the work, and those works are what keep visitors coming and clamoring for more. But Joe Van Gogh? Joe Van Gogh made Vincent Van Gogh happen. Had she not been there from day one to act as a tireless and enthusiastic advocate for Vincent Van Gogh's life and work, he would likely never have made it into the pantheon of art history, never would be among the highest selling and most valuable artists of all time, never would become who I lovingly call art history's favorite boyfriend. So if you love Van Gogh, then you have Joe to thank. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks once again to Mary Beth Soya for her research this episode and for almost all the episodes this season. If you liked this episode, head over to read Joe's journal online at bongerdiaries.org, and also look up the incredible work of author and art historian Hans Luetjen, who has researched Joe extensively and even wrote the first ever biography of her. So far, it looks like it is only available in Dutch, but an English translation is hopefully around the corner. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daveraineydesign.com. And our podcast is co produced by Kabunki Podcasts, creative video, and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the Triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a five hundred one c three nonprofit creativity incubator. To find out more about our show, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. Check back with us in two weeks as we continue to explore some of the incredible women behind the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful works in art history.